Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19. And before we listen to the sermon text, we will pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is marvelous. Your word is life-giving. By your word, you created everything. You talked, you spoke this universe into existence. And also you said, let there be light. And the light of the glory of your gospel, the light of Christ was created in our hearts so that, would, that we would see his glories and have faith. We ask you that by your word you will uphold and strengthen our faith this morning, that we will see the glories of your word and of Christ and of the gospel again more clearly. Use me as the vessel of this precious truth to speak what is truthful and glorifying to you and help us all to listen well and to take to heart what we hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. A 
I see there are a couple of children here this morning, which is uh, beautiful. I don't know if you draw any pictures uh, during the sermon or how you spend your time, the children, I mean. Um, so maybe the children, you, if you're really good, you can draw a picture of Winnie the Pooh because you all know that Winnie the Pooh, he loves honey. Or you just draw a jaw of honey. Or if that's even too difficult, just draw a sun because it's, the sermon is about all these things. It's about the sun who is such a glorious testimony, singing praises to God, so to speak, even though we can't hear, hear it. And Winnie the Pooh, he is such a great example because he just loves honey, doesn't he? And this psalm says the word of God is like honey. And if we or if you children love the Bible and love God's word and the gospel of Jesus as much as Winnie the Pooh loves honey, then you are set for such a great time with the Bible, with the church, with Sunday that will really satisfy a hunger that you probably don't even understand yet, like a Bible for a hunger for spiritual things. And Winnie the Pooh, next time you see him on television or you uh, read a book about him, just imagine that what honey is for Winnie the Pooh, that's what the Bible is supposed to be for us, right? That we really love it and desire it. And uh, I guess all the adults also know Winnie the Pooh, but we will dive in a little deeper with this wonderful Psalm 19, such a beautiful song. It contains wonderful images of the sun and the sky preaching, God's, preaching to God's glory, and it shows forth the perfection and the value of God's word as well in such a concise and effective way that, that readers want to marvel at God's glory and study the scripture more diligently every time they read this psalm. Like, just on the first read-through, we understand the message of this psalm, that nature glorifies God and that scripture is so beautiful that we should live our lives according to it. And this morning, we want to do exactly that. We want to listen to what God has to say to us in and through the psalm and hopefully walk away with an even deeper appreciation for it. Because if there's one thing maybe that might challenge us if we if we read the psalm, maybe not necessarily, but it might challenge us, it is this third part of the psalm, the personal prayer to God. To some degree, it just makes sense. It makes always, it always makes sense to react to God and to pray when we hear about the glory of God in creation or the beauty of his words, the qualities of this life-giving word. But I think there's even more than that. It's not just a nice reaction, a proper reaction, but there is, as we will see, a literary unity and an ingenuity in the construction of the psalm that makes this last part really, really precious. And even this last part evaluates the rest of the psalm as well. Spurgeon wrote, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. This gets close to what we aim at this morning, to read the world book, the book of nature, and to read the book of scripture with an attitude that all of this comes from our Heavenly Father and all of this is there for us to grow more towards Him.
First, let's look at creation. First point, creation, the book of the glory of God. The idea of two books, that's much older than Spurgeon. In our church in Heidelberg, we use the Belgic Confession as part of our confessional standards. And it says in Article 2, we know God by two means, first by the creation and preservation and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20. And the second book, of course, I don't want to continue with this quote now, is the written word of God. David explains how creation is proclaiming the glory of God. And creation doesn't tell us much about God as much as about, about God as Scripture does. But what it proclaims, it proclaims clearly for everyone to hear and to see. And David wrote it just brilliantly. On the one hand, the heavens are silent. Nature cannot speak. It is inaudible, without language, without words. And yet, it is particularly this first part where David uses all the words of speaking. The sun or the, the skies, they proclaim. It's here where they talk about the message being reported and the words go to the ends of the earth. All the verbs of speaking and proclaiming appear here in that first part. And interestingly, in the second part, which is about the word of God, like those verbs don't appear. So David emphasizes and proclaims, David emphasizes that nature create, uh, proclaims. It's not even as much about the content as about the fact that nature proclaims. But let us start with the message nonetheless because it says a couple of things. First of all, and most obviously, nature proclaims the glory of God. The sky proclaims the glory of God, proclaims that he is cre the creator and that the sky, the skies themselves, the suns, the moons, the luminaries are mere creatures. Everything is made by his hands. Now we know that God doesn't have hands. It's an image, an image of God as a skillful artist, an architect who created the world. And he created in such a way that every part of it, every part in it proclaims God's glory, his being, his divinity, his power. The world didn't come into existence by mere accidents. There are no eternal elements, whatever you, we might call them, that just always existed and then in some way formed into a universe with a Big Bang or whatever. Rather, everything that is not God but exists was created by God and it proclaims that it was created by him. This glorious sky that we see every morning maybe or in the evening, just this beautiful sunset, this glorious sky proclaims that it is a creature of a being who is even more glorious, a glorious God. It proclaims his power because he is the one who creates something like that. He is the one who creates the universe, the sun, the stars, the earth. So he must be much greater than all those things together. 
They are all creatures of his mind and of his hand. He invented them, so to speak, and he had the ability to build them, which means he is much stronger, much better. And Israel was surrounded by nations who would worship the sun. They thought the sun was divine, is a divine being. And Israel just proclaims that the suns and luminaries are not only no gods, but they even proclaim that there is a god. So it's a double fault of those pagan nations. They don't understand that they were created, and then they also worship them. Now, interestingly, Paul says that everything that is created proclaims God's divinity and power, but Psalm 19 basically only speaks about the sky and the luminaries. Now, we know that everything is proclaiming God's glory, the sun as well as the depths of the ocean, the stars as well as every ladybug. But Psalm 19 is mentioning only the sky, and I think it does so because it wants to stress the that this proclamation is universal. The cedars of Lebanon certainly also proclaim the glory of God, but most people have never seen them or will ever see them. So it wouldn't make sense to say that the cedars of Lebanon proclaim the glory of God because so many people can't relate to that. But everyone, everyone sees the sky. You cannot not see it. You cannot run from this proclamation. You cannot run from this revelation. It's overflowing. It's everywhere. Day, verse 2 says, day to day pours out. Creation is like a fountain from which the glory of God springs forth. And you see the sky also every day. It's not just, it's not just simply the fact that everyone has seen it, but we see it all the time, every day. Creation didn't stop for a single day to proclaim his creator. It never grows tired of it because its very existence shows forth God's power. You see the sky even when you don't look at it directly. It's just always there once you have a win uh, window in a room. You always see it. God's revelation and the glorious, the glorious revelation of, of his power, they're always there. They're always in our face, so to speak. And also, we, we see here that this proclamation happens all day long, day to day, pours out speech, and even night to night reveals knowledge. Individual trees, they come and go, and humans come and go, and animals come and go. But creation, here exemplified by the sky, will continue to praise God. Even when nobody is listening, like we all sleep at night, we don't, we don't hear, we don't see what the skies are saying about the glories of God. And still they do, still they do, still they can't stop. And I guess that goes without saying, but I, I do want to add it. I mean, that even, that we, there are people who don't see the sky because they are blind, but we know that David here is using a picture basically to say that God's general revelation is all around us. It's not just the sky. It's just living in this universe and experiencing the graces God has put here that all, all of that reveals um, God's being, that there is a creator. 
The son is a heavenly preacher. He's like a warrior. And the image here is beautiful. Either the uh, commentators debate, either it's the image of one who is in a victory parade and the whole population of a, of a town comes together and they see this victorious warrior or maybe I think that's even better uh, expositional explanation he is a warrior who is excited for battle he is running towards the enemy he is running without hesitation without detours he has a task as a task is set before him he knows it and he's diving right into it that's the course of the sun on the sky and that's the determination with which all of the created reality proclaims God. And then we also, we not only get this image of um, intentionality, but also of joy. Nature or the sun is like a bridegroom who leaves either his chamber to pick up his bride before they get married, or, and then in this case, he would be accompanied by the whole village or something, or who is, uh, um, he is a bridegroom who joyfully exits the wedding chamber. But there is joy, there is beauty in creation that will never cease, never stop to confront us with the beauty of an even more glorious and beautiful God. Here at the end of this first section, there is a small change, almost a change in perspective. First, it says that everyone sees the sky. Like we, we see the sky, we hear them talk, but then at the end, it seems to turn. Nothing is hidden from the sun's heat and light. It's almost like the sun is now looking at us. There's not a single human being who lived on this earth and didn't hear the sermon of, of, about God's glory about a God who made all of us, about a God to whom we owe responsibility and obedience. And in this context, he says, nothing is hidden from the sun's light. That's even more interesting because David will later pray, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Like he doesn't see his own fault, but thinking of the sun and how it's a picture of God's presence and the creator's presence, he knows that the sins that are hidden to us are not hidden to God. And it's good that they are not hidden to him and we shouldn't hide them. We shouldn't try to hide them from him because it doesn't work. Rather, what we should do is understand the love of God, the grace of God that he has shown to us in Jesus Christ and then confess our sins. We need the second part of the psalm to see a gracious Lord who can make us alive so that we can also confess our sin, like David does at the end, and pray for protection from sins. With that, for that reason, we now want to turn to the second part of the psalm, the second book, so to speak. First was the book of creation, the book of the glory of God, and now we turn to the book of Scripture, the book of the gracious Lord. The image of gold and honey and the description of the word as enlightening our eyes uh, suggests that 
to some degree, David maybe wants to say that this scripture is even superior to creation, superior over creation, because yeah, it has the same gold and, and honey. They have the same golden quality like the sun. They enlighten us, but not just with a general heat on a warm day, but they enlighten us in our soul, the words of God. But of course, there is no competition between those two kinds of revelation. Nature is doing what it's supposed to do. And it is clear in that it is there to proclaim the existence of a creator, of a powerful God. But it is also clear that we as sinners will always suppress this revelation and even turn our attention away from God to the created things. I remind you of Romans chapter 1 where he, Paul says that uh, the pagans, sinners in general, worship animals and everything that's part of the created realm instead of the creator himself. So we need the, the eye-opening, life-giving and gladdening word And similar to the first part of the psalm, even here, the focus is not so much on the content, but the character of Scripture, its power, what it does, what it can achieve in our lives. When David talks about God's Word, he, of course, he focuses on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, because there wasn't much, he didn't have many more books or scrolls, but for us today, obviously, also includes the entire Old Testament and even the New Testament as well. So we will always have to keep that in mind when we talk about the Word of God or Torah here as it's being used and all those different words that David is using. Now we can't, for obvious reasons, go through each line and look at the description of the Word of God here, but uh, I do encourage you to take the time maybe during the week to, to study that more, um, more deeply. But uh, I will highlight a couple, of, a couple of minor points, starting at the very beginning in verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the Hebrew word here for law is Torah, and it should better be translated as instruction. When we read the word law, we always think of do's and don'ts, But Torah is also a term that can be used for the entire Pentateuch. It's God's instruction that leads to life. It includes laws that show us our sins, but it also includes the good news. Like the, the term Torah in the Old Testament is not, has not such a fixed, small meaning just about um, talking about laws of the nation of Israel. And David says the whole instruction that he has, the Pentateuch, let's say, is perfect. All of the words of God are perfect. And that is really the foundation. That's probably not by accident that the first line of this description. It's perfect. Every other quality flows from this perfection, from this flawlessness of the word of God. Because it is perfect, scripture is sufficient to instruct you in every way you need to know in order to live for God. And his testimony, he says, is sure. You can count on it. You can rely on it. It will make you wise. And of, of course, 
given our darkened, sinful mind, the wisdom we ought to think about is primarily the wisdom of the gospel. Christ is our wisdom. In him, all treasures of wisdom and understanding are found. Knowing him, believing him, living according to him, that's what the scriptures aim at. Making us wise so we can really live a wise life for God, which means a life of faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures, as Paul puts it later, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, as he writes it to Timothy. And the simple in verse 7, they're probably not the fools or the arrogant people, but rather people like children or the youth, unexperienced people. How can they live a good and godly life? How can they live in a way that's pleasing to God, only if they walk according to the ways of the Word of God. Imagine an old suspension bridge that's about to collapse, and you need signs, you need warning signs not to enter that bridge, but to go another way. We need God's Word to lead us on the safe road, the road that avoids sin, the road that avoids the devil's Temptations, the worldliness, we need his word all the time. It's not enough that we read the word of God one time and then we know everything we need to know about how to live for God. We need it daily because daily we, with our, with our still sinful being, with, our, with this old Adam who's still in us, we are prone to walk on the wrong ways. Yeah, I recommend taking the time to dive in a bit deeper um, in these verses and it's also a wonderful practice maybe to go through each of those lines and just list them and put in Christ or the gospel and just meditate on the, this new message that comes out by this like, for example the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect reviving the soul the gospel is sure making the wise making the simple wise his word of grace is right rejoicing the heart, and so on. Yet just seeing the cross, resurrection, ascension, and the sitting of Jesus at the right hand of the Father through this lens opens us anew to the glories of this wonderful message of Jesus, our Savior. And let us work towards spiritual eyes that see those glories. We really have to meditate on it. Let us work towards spiritual eyes that see the beauty of this word as we see Maybe we, we don't even recognize it anymore as we see the beautiful sky every day. Like We see it all the time. We can appreciate it. We stop. We look at it when there's a beautiful sunset. Let us take the same time and increase this desire to have the same attitude towards the Word of God. Can we share this excitement with David? And I don't want to ask this question to shame you. Reading about David's love, of course, may have this effect on us, on our conscience, because maybe we are neglecting the Word of God. Maybe some of you have neglecting the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God recently. Then being ashamed to some degree can be helpful, but it's really not my primary intention when I'm asking 
can we share David's excitement? Rather, it's to encourage you so that you read and study scripture and theology even more, not from a feeling of shame, but a desire for more, because we understand how lovely it is to spend time with the Lord this way. And the only way to increase this desire is by spending time with the Word. Imagine you would never have tasted honey, and maybe some of the children, you listen again for a minute. Imagine you have read all the books about Winnie the Pooh or watched all the television series, whatever. Uh, I don't know exactly um, how you consume Winnie the Pooh anyways, but uh, imagine you have read Winnie the Pooh books. Then you know he likes honey. Honey must be very delicious. Why else would he be so crazy about it and love it and eat it all the time and can't get enough of it? So maybe you say, I see why Winnie the Pooh loves honey, but I've never tasted it, so I don't know. But one day, maybe, you will taste some honey, and then you realize, wow, Winnie the Pooh, he's right. Honey really is the best thing out there. That's the same with the Word of God. If we just hear other people talking about it, but we never spend time with it, we can maybe acknowledge that other people are of the opinion that the Word of God is great and beautiful and wonderful and worth spending our time with it. But we know, don't know from experience. You could meet with fans of honey every week and you hear them talk about it. I could attend honey conferences, so to speak, with distinguished lectures on the qualities and the taste of honey. And then I might say, I'm convinced that it must be the most delicious food. I trust the arguments. It must be the best food on this planet. I'm looking forward to trying it one day. But once I try it, it will be a completely different situation. Even though I didn't have any doubts beforehand about the quality and the taste of honey, now I know from experience. Now I know what they all talk about. And now I know what I'm talking about. I can't say from experience that the taste of honey is unparalleled. I don't care about your taste of honey, but we get the picture. We have to experience the Word of God. Now, obviously, the difference is that hearing the Word of God preached to us Sunday by Sunday and in conference lectures is indeed where we taste the Word. So I don't want to downplay these things at all. As the Westminster Confession says, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God an effectual means of enlightening and convicting us. But rather, I want to encourage us to listen well when we have the chance to listen to sermons, to take it seriously, to prepare the sermon as well as revisit it throughout the next week, to take Sunday evening worship services seriously, to sit and listen, not just passively, because it's a duty we have to fulfill, but actively because we desire it. We know how delicious, how tasty it is. And then, of course, fill our entire week with the Word of God. And the more we are being captivated by this book, particularly by the message of God who comes to save sinners by becoming human and taking our sins upon himself, the more we become invested in that book in an existential way. 
And with this existential way, we now turn to the third point of the sermon, the last part of the psalm. First, we looked at those two books, the book of creation, the book of scripture. And now we look at the prayer of believers, the prayer of believers, Lord, my rock. The prayer of believers, Lord, my rock. Psalm 19 usually, is usually referred to when we talk theologically about general and special revelation. And that's certainly right, certainly right. But if it was just about general revelation in nature and God's special revelation in the word of God and the gospel in particular, then this psalm could have stopped at verse 11 or maybe even 10. But if, if we reduce this psalm to a theological treatise on natural and special revelation, we will simply misunderstand it. We will entirely miss the point, probably. Then it's only a lecture on honey, so to speak, on the subject of revelation for that matter. But David has acquired the taste for it. And what I love about Psalm 19 or Psalm 119, for example, is that you get rich theology. You get a rich theology of revelation and the character of scripture and stuff like sufficiency and the clarity of scriptures and other terminology. Like you get all that, but it's embedded in the life of believers. It's tied to our existences. David's reflection on creation and scripture is not just curiosity. It's not just philosophizing, but he sees two things that God has put his stamp on. Nature reflects the glory of God as well as the word of God. They reflect his perfections, making a life. That's God's business. Rejoicing, that's God's business. Making us glad, that's God's business. Like he sees those two things, nature and scripture, and God has put his stamp, his character on them, and he sires that for his own life. David wants to be shaped by these two books, or rather he wants to have the stamp of God's character put on him in the same way that these two books have that stamp put on them. In this psalm, there is a progress which now finds its climax in the third part. And this culmination is about nothing less than that we live in a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord who saves us, with our rock, who is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. This final part is about nothing less than that we receive the help of God and his salvation and that we are obedient to him with all our heart. That's why he says about God's instructions, in keeping them, there is great reward. He is not talking about rewards that follow obedience. For example, like in Israel, if they are obedient, they will have healthy and big families and all that kind of stuff. That's a reward that's following their obedience. Rather, David says that the very keeping of the word of God, of his instructions, that is his reward. God's word and his gospel is so beautiful to him that living with them is itself rewarding. Now, let us look at this progress and what that means, this reward, this joy, this desire, how that how he applies all that to his own life. 
Here I owe much to an article by Ross Wagner. You probably have never heard of him and will never hear of him again, but I want to um, definitely acknowledge that source. Um, first, we see, we see this progress in Psalm 19 with respect to the designation of God. In the first part of creation, maybe you listened or maybe you, you heard it and picked up on it. In the first part about creation, we only hear the term God. Only the word God is mentioned. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The Hebrew is using the very generic title of God, El, which is a short form of Elohim, which is almost like spiritual being, or God in this case. And yes, creation does proclaim God's glory, but, but only in this rather generic sense. As Paul says, we can see his divinity and his, his divine power in creation, but not much more. The second section in the psalm doesn't use the word God, but uses his covenant name, Lord, six times. In our English translation, it just says Lord in capital letters, but uh, that's unfortunate, but probably you know that's not just some generic lordship title, i.e. he is the Lord, we are his servants, but Lord means his covenant name. The Hebrew word behind it is Yahweh, which is the name that he gave to Moses. That's his name with which he revealed himself to Israel as he led them out of Egypt. That's a covenant name. That's the name of his personal relationship with Israel. Only they call him by that name. So Lord is not just lordship title, but Lord in those capital letters means Yahweh. That's his name. So six times is the word of God characterized by this word. It's the instructions, it's the Torah, it's of Yahweh, of his personal name, because in his word of God, he makes himself known personally. He makes himself known to us as one who wants to have a relationship with us, who takes care of this relationship by actually taking all that is between us upon himself and takes away all the enmity between him and us. It's not just the word of a God, but the word of the Lord, the word who is for his people, with his people. And it is then in the third and final part of the psalm that we find another occurrence of the name Lord or Yahweh. And it is here in this very personal way where he's talking about God. He says, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Isn't that just marvelous, even from a literary perspective? God in chapter 1, so to speak, where it says about the revelation in nature. Then six times his name, his gracious covenantal relationship name, Yahweh, in chapter 2. But it's not complete. It's not complete yet. The seventh time, and we know seven means completion and fullness, the seventh time this name appears in that psalm is only when the psalmist is using this name in his own prayer, in his own addressing of God. Lord, my rock and my salvation. Now there is completion. When not only we hear the word of the Lord and what he has done for us, but when we answer and call him Lord, my rock, my salvation. You are that for me as well. Like we, ha we have this progress, we have this intensification of God, and then six times Lord or Yahweh, and then the seventh time when the psalmist is using it in his own prayer. And then there's a second intensification that runs throughout this psalm. 
from the impersonal or cosmic, so to speak, to the very personal aspect. In the first part, we heard the heavens speak, but man is completely absent. There's nothing said about humanity in that part. They would even talk and speak, the heavens and the skies, when none of us were listening. In the second part, we hear at least that God, we hear at least that God makes alive the soul, or that he makes the simple wise. So he takes care of humans by his word. He loves humans. He is inviting every human, everyone, to live with him, to the gospel. But in the third part, the psalmist is speaking himself. And he calls himself, I am your servant. It's not just about God doing gracious things to humans, to souls, to simple people out there, but to me, to you, so that you might call yourself your servant to God. He's praying for himself. And in that last line, line where God's name also occurs for the seventh and last time, God is addressed for the first time directly in that psalm. Beforehand, it's talking about God and about other things, about nature and about his word. But now at the end, the psalm, has, well, the psalm is coming to closure God is being addressed directly. That's what God aims at with all his revelation, general revelation in nature and special revelation in his word of God, that we would turn to him, address him, call on his name, come to him with our sins, these threefold sins that David is mentioning here, and address him and take refuge with him as our rock and redeemer. That's marvelous. I mean, just from literary perspective, I love this. Um, this. And the psalm moves again from the heavens or the sky in first part to the heart in the last part. The heavens proclaim God, and the Bible is the word of God. But now may also my heart and my lips be so marked by you that what I'm thinking and what I'm talking about may be pleasing to you. Nature says wonderful things about God. The word of God is his word, obviously. Let also be my thoughts and my words. Be like that. Talk about God's glory, God's wonderful grace. Let me be marked by your grace. Put your stamp upon me so to speak. I said in the introduction that this last part, the last part elevates the rest of the psalm, and it is this development, this existential threat, so to speak, that I'm referring to. Considering such a glorious God as he is revealed in nature and such a gracious Father through Jesus Christ, God who wants relationship, who takes away our sins, considering such a God and such a gracious Father David says, forgive me all my sins. Don't let me walk in sinful ways. Protect me that I may be as well someone who is revealing your glorious nature, your wonderful power, your love, your wisdom, your grace, 
and it may be our prayer as well this morning and throughout the rest of our lives that like the sun is in the sky proclaiming the glory of the Lord and like the word of God is characterized by his wonderful grace and being because it proclaims all of it that our lives and our thoughts and our words may be like that as well proclaiming the glory of God of our triune God and Savior Amen.